would remain standing, we are going to read God's Word together. Um, As you may know, we're in the book of Acts, so today we are going to be turning to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, and then 12 through 18. So make sure you follow along. If you have a Bible, please open it up, Acts chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me or on one of the monitors. Let's read together. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then in verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my servants, Spirit, and they will prophesy. You may be seated. Move this up a bit. Kind of feel far from you. What would the world be like without the dawn of power tools? What if they'd never been invented? You couldn't just drill a hole into the wall or or zap ten screws into a board or, or cut through a piece of wood like a hot knife through butter. Or think of trying to break up an entire concrete street without a jackhammer. Think of trying to do it with like a little screwdriver and a hammer. Some tasks would seem virtually impossible. And think of other things besides tools. A A few guys and I decided to rent a house when I was in seminary. And it had a pretty sizable yard. But we had this idea that it would be manly and cheap in order to get one of those like old lawnmowers without the mower. And uh, to make a long story short, it turned out to be not such a great idea. We would spend hours and hours and hours out there in the scorching heat. A goat would have been faster than us. And that was just a yard. Think of doing something like a sprawling, luscious PGA course. Some tasks would seem virtually impossible. What about an airplane without a powered engine? On June 12, 1979, a plane called the Gossamer Albatross flew the 22-mile stretch across the waters of the English Channel. This wouldn't have been a big deal at all except for the fact that this plane was powered by a man pedaling it like a bicycle. It took the plane 
three hours, three hours to travel 22 miles. And it never went faster than 18 miles per hour. So if it had gone through a school zone, it would have been fine. The average altitude of the plane was only five feet above the water. Just coasting along. And as you can imagine, after hours, three hours of this grueling labor, the plane landed and the bike rider pilot descended exhausted. He did it all without a powered engine. It's pretty amazing. But if you asked him to do the 8,000 mile non-stop flight from, to Hong Kong that leaves daily from O'Hare, I'm not sure he would have been up for it. Without power, see, without something more than human power, this task would be virtually impossible. It would be totally impossible. Without power, some tasks just get nowhere. And last week we began our journey through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1. And we saw that the disciples were given a task. They were entrusted with a mission from Jesus. And this is the central theme of the book. This is the central message. The disciples were entrusted to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the world. At first, the task must have seemed virtually impossible. They were few in number. They were ordinary folks. And they were not known for their courage. Just over a month before this, they were all seen running away in the garden of Gethsemane, fearing for their lives. They scattered. And they were facing a hostile Roman world with a scandalous message of a crucified and risen Savior. It must have seemed impossible. And yet, by the end of the book of Acts, the message had spread across 1,500 miles. And 120 disciples of Jesus were multiplied to 200,000. Establishing churches in all different regions, including people from all different backgrounds, to the extent that in Acts 17.6, they were accused of turning the world upside down. All within a time span of three decades. One generation. Something happened. The task had seemed virtually impossible, like trying to fly nonstop from here to Hong Kong on our own strength. Totally impossible. You would get nowhere unless you were relying on a source of power far beyond your own abilities. See, that would make all the difference. It comes down to what power is propelling the task. Is it our own or is it something much greater? Acts chapter 2 shows us what made all the difference in the mission of the disciples. The Holy Spirit enters the picture. This is the propelling power behind their task. A power much greater than their own. And the central message of this chapter is that the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital for the mission of the disciples. It seems so simple. The 
power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital for the mission of the disciples. And yet it is so essential that we can't afford to forget it for a second. John Stott puts it this way. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the spirit without so the church without the spirit is lifeless. Likewise, Charles Spurgeon says this. Without the spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. And that's what Acts 2 shows us. As we work through our passage today, we will see four actions of the Spirit that prove to be absolutely vital for the mission of the disciples. So if you have a Bible with you, please join me again in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. See, verse 1 sets the stage for the entire chapter. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. Pentecost had come, a Jewish festival celebrated 50 days after Passover. And this means that Jewish people from all over the known world, from dozens of different regions, would be gathered back in Jerusalem, all together in the same place. And what I, well, something, one detail that I love is that the Pentecost was a festival celebrating the harvest. And we find the disciples all together in one place as well. It had been ten days since Jesus left. Ten days since he went to heaven. And Acts chapter 1 tells us that during these ten days, the disciples were constantly gathering for united prayer in the upper room. So that's probably what they're doing right here. That's probably what they're doing on the morning of Pentecost. They were preparing for what happened next. And all of a sudden, the whole place is consumed with this thick wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling sound that was like a mighty rushing wind, or as some translations put it, a violent wind. For us in the Midwest, especially an Iowa boy like me, we would say it was like a tornado. Most people describe the roar of a tornado like the sound of a freight train. It makes me think of walking along in Chicago, mid-conversation, and then all of a sudden the L is like right above you. And it still gets me every time. And my whole body tenses up. And it, it is so, the sound is so overpowering that you don't even try to talk. It's pointless. Even if you were speaking loudly, the roar of the train would consume everything you said. This is what I imagine happening in that upper room. What does it mean? All throughout the Bible, wind is used to represent the Spirit. And I think the sheer volume of wind here points to the fact that the Spirit has not been portioned out delicately, but now poured out mightily. The Spirit has arrived in power, poured out mightily. Verses 3 through 6 show us the first action for the mission of the disciples. We read, 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Action number one. The Spirit empowered each disciple. In this explosion of events, we watch as these fire-like tongues appear to the disciples, spreading throughout the room and then settling down on each one of them. And with that, they began to testify about God fluently in different foreign languages. And it's easy to get wrapped up here because of the mention of speaking in tongues. And I I want to avoid getting wrapped up here because that's not the point of the verses. But I also don't want to ignore it because it's important for all of us to work through Scripture and not around it. And that's one of the good things of of, um, preaching through an entire book of the Bible. That's one of the reasons why we're committed to doing that at Good News is that it forces us to not just pick and choose the topics we're going to preach on. Whenever something shows up in the text, we're, we're called to work through it, not around it. So without spending too much time here, I'll just point out a few things about speaking in tongues. As we read through the book, as we read through the book of Acts, we do not always see people speaking in tongues when they receive the Spirit. In fact, it only happens three times. And each time it's a specific situation with a specific purpose. Each time it it functions to mark something that God is doing on the grand scale of history and not the personal level in general. Speaking in tongues is not the evidence of the Spirit in the book of Acts. And it's not the evidence of the Spirit in the rest of the Bible. The Bible is clear that the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is our character. Scripture says that the evidence of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The evidence of the Spirit is found in the work in our hearts. But to be clear, there's a difference between speaking in tongues as the evidence of the Spirit and seeing it as a gift of the Spirit. There are wise and godly people who disagree on this. But I personally think that seeing it as a gift of the Spirit has the strongest biblical support. And before we defend our beliefs from Scripture, we must conform our beliefs to Scripture. So like other gifts, it's not for everyone, and Scripture lays out clear parameters for those who do have it, but if it is a gift, then it is from God, and what God gives is good. We have to carefully walk this biblical line, because it's so easy to fall into different sides, but to carefully walk the line of Scripture, knowing well what to avoid 
and well but to affirm. And there's more to say here, but it's not the main point. The main point of this section is an amazing truth, and we can't miss it. Notice the emphasis of these verses. It starts right out at the beginning. Verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the same emphasis is found in Peter's explanation of the event to the crowd. Peter explains the significance of what just happened by drawing on a specific passage from the Old Testament. Listen to verses 16 through 18 from his speech. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On your sons and on your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. See, Peter is explaining that, that Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled in their midst that day. The time has come when God's Spirit would be poured out on all of God's people. See, in the Old Testament, it was just for specific people and special tasks. But here, it's for all of God's people, without distinction, without exception, young, old, male, female, sons and daughters. That's the true significance of what's happening this morning. That's the point of this section. It's about the Spirit coming to all believers. And that's even seen in the fact that they spoke in foreign languages. See, this symbolizes that the Spirit is not just for an elite class of people, not just for the Hebrew of the Hebrews, but for every nation, tribe, and tongue that calls upon the name of the Lord. And the main point of this section is that the Spirit empowers each and every disciple. This proved to be vital in the mission of the disciples. Because building the kingdom of God is so much bigger than one person. If it had depended entirely on Peter, it would have failed. If if it had uh, depended entirely on Paul, it would have failed. Every member was given a gift of the Spirit and every member has a crucial part to play. It is truly an every member mission where every member is needed. And it's more than just the fact that every disciple has the Spirit. It requires that every disciple depend on the Spirit. I remember a professor of mine challenging us with this question. Hypothetically, if God removed His Holy Spirit from your life today, would you notice? Would things stay basically the same? Or are you so depending on Him that your life would fall apart? I remember hearing that question and just going back to my room and needing to repent. You see, we're not desperate for God's help when we're just going through the motions. We're desperate for God's help when we are saying yes to Him, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, even when it's uncomfortable. It's about saying yes to God. It's about saying, yes, God, 
But there's no way that I will be able to do this without you. The mission of God requires each disciple to be actively engaged and actively dependent. And that makes all the difference. The second action of the Holy Spirit is found in Peter's sermon, which stretches from verses 14 all the way to verse 39. And what we see here is this. The Spirit emboldened Peter's witness. Bold can mean two things. It can mean to make something clear, like bold letters, or it can mean to make something courageous, like a bold move. And we see both of these aspects in Peter's sermon. See, it was clear. Peter laid out who Jesus is and what that meant for the crowd. Clearly, in the clearest way possible. His witness to Jesus included five key elements. First, the testimony of Scripture. See, Peter uses Scripture directly three times in this section. It takes up the vast amount of his speech. He is showing the crowd that the coming of Jesus perfectly lines up with what God has always said would happen. This is not something that the disciples just invented. It's not something they were making up. It has been the plan all along. And so when we see how Jesus perfectly fulfilled those scriptures, the conclusion is that it could not possibly happen by random coincidence. It could not possibly happen by chance. This is the only one it could possibly be. Jesus is the foretold coming Savior. The second key element in Peter's witness is the life of Jesus. We see this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. See, the life of Jesus testifies that he was more than just a great man. He was truly the Son of God. That is why it's so powerful to read through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, especially if you're considering Jesus, because it shows us his life up close and personal. In fact, the Gospel of John puts it this way. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's about seeing that Jesus is the Son of God. The third element in Peter's gospel witness is the death of Christ. Peter says in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified by the hands of lawless men. See, the cross of Christ simultaneously shows us the gravity of our guilt and the greatness of God's grace. It shows us that in our guilt, our sin needed to be punished. But in God's grace, He took the punishment. It was perfect justice. And that it was perfect punishment. But it was perfect love. And that He took the punishment. And this is the heart of the gospel. The fourth element is the resurrection of Christ. Verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up. In our witness, sometimes it's easy to skip over this part. But we can't miss it. And here's why. 
Jesus died the death of someone under the curse of God. That's what his death signified to everyone there. Galatians 3.13 Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if he would have stayed dead, then the natural conclusion is that he deserved the curse of God. But the very fact that he was raised from the dead shows to everyone that he did not deserve it. He was innocent and he took it for us. That's the message of the resurrection. And it's also our hope. You see, if Jesus was raised to life and we belong to Jesus, then this is our shared destiny with Him. Then this is the result of our salvation so that we can look down the line of life and say, no matter what happens, I will be okay. I will be with God forever. That is the hope of the gospel. The fifth element in Peter's witness is an invitation to respond. Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me be clear. God is not calling us to be like used car salesmen in our gospel witness. That's not what this is about. The last thing that we want to do is try to force this on anyone. But it does mean helping people to clearly see that Jesus requires a response. Jesus requires a response. What good is someone having the right prescription if they don't take it? It requires a response. The, the gospel is more than just information to be stored away. It's about following Jesus as Lord and Savior. So in the gospel, when Jesus calls us to follow Him, to stand still is to say no. It requires a response. These five elements, Scripture, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, and an invitation combined to give Peter's witness bold clarity. And they stand to do the same for our witness today. The Spirit also made Peter bold in the sense that he was courageous. Less than two months before this speech... Peter had denied his association with Christ completely. He denied Christ three times. Around a campfire, a cozy campfire with a small group of people, Peter was unwilling to claim that he was a follower of Christ. A small group of people probably out of fear. Here we see Peter. Standing before thousands. Standing before thousands. I love verse 14. To paraphrase, Peter stood up and spoke up. Peter stood up and spoke up. And he is not ashamed anymore. 
to claim the name of Jesus Christ. Look at this. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 23. This Jesus. Verse 32. This Jesus. Verse 36. This Jesus. Verse 38. In the name of Jesus Christ. Peter calls him Lord before everyone. How often is the name of Jesus entering our conversation? I was once challenged that it's easy to to speak of God in generalities. And that's still good. But when we name the name of Jesus, it shows people where we stand. Peter says, Jesus, this Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. And he doesn't just tell the crowd what they want to hear. He doesn't kind of give them a warm and fuzzy, feel-good message. We see his courage and his willingness to let them know that they were not right with God. Twice he says to the crowd, Jesus whom you crucified. That's bold. Not everyone at Pentecost was there on Good Friday. So that's not the point. It's not about literally nailing Jesus to the cross. It's about the fact that we all have responsibility in the death of Christ because we all have sin that needed to be forgiven. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Jesus died for sinners. I'm a sinner. Peter doesn't tell them about their guilt so that he can rub it in their faces. He doesn't tell them about their guilt so that he can feel better than them. He tells them about their guilt so that they can seek the same grace that he too has found. He is letting them know their need for grace so that they can seek the Lord. This is not about being rude or self-righteous or brash. That's not the goal. It's about being lovingly courageous. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is by the power of the Holy Spirit to help someone see their need for the grace of God. The same grace that we too would found. It's about being lovingly courageous. That's exactly the kind of courage the Spirit gives. We have every reason to believe that this was not something natural for Peter. It was something supernatural. It was God-given courage. And I want to just speak about this in our lives for just a second. If there is something that God has been tugging on your heart to do, clearly in line with his will but honestly it is stretching you and you are hesitating I think we all can relate but this passage reminds us that the spirit gives us courage to step out in obedience and follow God to step out in obedience to God I want to just encourage us this morning that there is God given 
supernatural courage available to you and I. The same kind of courage that transformed the Peter on Good Friday to the Peter on Pentecost. That's the God-given courage available for us. The Spirit emboldened Peter's witness. It was clear and courageous. And that made all the difference. The third action of the Holy Spirit is found in verses 40 through 41. We read, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I think I read that that's a um, 26 times um, expansion. 3,000 people came to Christ that day. And here's why. Action number three. The Spirit awakened people's hearts. What I want us to see here is that the disciples did not make this happen. They didn't plug in a formula. They didn't manufacture this response. The Holy Spirit brought awakening. And this is reinforced by the very last verse of the chapter. The the, the statement that we are left with says this in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If we want to see a spiritual awakening in even one person's heart, the basic ingredient is not Peter. The basic ingredient is not eloquence. The basic ingredient is not a certain formula. The basic ingredient is the work, the power of the Holy Spirit. God uses us. God involves us. We have a part to play. But only His Spirit can reach the heart. And if we can't reach the heart, then it's a call to pray to the only one who can. Notice what the disciples were doing before this event. Acts 1.14, I'll read it to you. They devoted themselves to prayer. And then notice what they were doing right after this event. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer. I, I get excited when I talk to people about what God might do in this community at large, at this time, at this place where God has put us on purpose. But what we learn from this passage is that it starts with prayer. So we can have the, the best services and the best programs and the best everything, but we still won't be able to reach the heart. It starts with prayer. I want to see God's kingdom flourish at this, in this community. We want to see God's kingdom just flourish in this community at every level. But it starts with prayer. And I am reminded that if I want God's Spirit to just flood into this community, I have to ask Him first to flood into my heart. And it starts with prayer. And that's partly why, as a whole church family, we want to start the year off with a concentrated, intentional time of prayer this Thursday at at Vertical Worship. That's, That's the goal behind it. 
And it's not the end all be all of prayer. But it's our desire that it would be something that sparks that much more in our own personal prayer life. Like a springboard. That much more in our own prayer life. And also in, in our prayer life as, as a church family. For this year ahead of us. And for those who are able, we'd also like to invite you to combine this with the 24-hour fast from Thursday evening to Friday evening. And, and what a fast does is that it opens up more time for prayer in our day. See, when we remove the time it takes to prepare a meal or eat a meal, we have that much more time to be seeking the Lord and it cultivates an attitude of dependence upon Him. So if, if fasting from food is not something that's a good idea for you, I want to encourage you to consider fasting from something else that if you removed it from your day, would still open up a pocket of time, pockets of time, to be praying to the Lord and cultivating an attitude of dependence on Him. I think fasting is especially important in our day and age when everything is at our fingertips. And fasting is just a reminder that we want to do God's will more than we want anything else. And that our impulses no longer reign in our hearts. It's a reminder that Jesus, a tangible reminder, that Jesus reigns in our hearts. So it's our desire that this would be something of a springboard in our prayer life as individuals and as a church family. In the mission of the disciples, the Holy Spirit awakened hearts and it made all the difference. The fourth and final action of the Holy Spirit in this passage is found in verses 42 through 47. We read. And they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Action number four, the Holy Spirit transformed the believing community. The Holy Spirit shaped the life of this community of believers in a beautiful and astonishing way. And three characteristics stand out about their community life. They were characterized by devotion. The word devotion speaks of holding on to something with tenacity with an unwillingness to let it go. I think of a time when I was a child and my mom and I were driving down the highway in Iowa and then out of nowhere, a tornado touched down nearby. And so we got out of the car and we went underneath the overpass and we just kind of clutched down in the overpass for a while until the tornado was a safe distance away. And it happened so quickly, I... I wasn't even 100% aware of what was going on. But afterwards, I looked down at my hand and there was a deep imprint, a deep imprint of where my mom's ring was. 
There was no way she was going to let me go. No way. No way. It's that kind of grip. That's the attitude that they had towards these certain events. That's the attitude that they had towards the Word. And that's the, the attitude that they had towards coming together. That's the attitude that they had towards celebrating communion together and prayer. And the expression, the prayers, seems to mean that it was set times of, of corporate prayer. They were holding on to these things. Unwilling to let them go for anything. I think that's so challenging. I think that's so challenging. What are some of the things that caused us to let go of these different areas in our life? The disciples had this attitude of devotion and unwillingness to let go of the word, to let go of the fellowship, to let go of communion, to, to let go of the prayers. An unwillingness to let go. And they were characterized by oneness. Verse 44, they were one in the sense of their togetherness. We see this word together repeated in this section. There was a bond about them deeper than anything on the surface because they shared life in Christ together. Whatever makes us different, Christ makes us more in common than anything else. There have been times I've traveled to other countries and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced similar things too where you meet someone who's just probably worlds apart to you in life and yet instantly you know they are a brother or a sister in Christ. There is a bond there that is deeper than any other commonality that we can have. These were people who spoke different languages, had different backgrounds. They probably had different customs and preferences. And yet there was this strong brotherhood and sisterhood about them. There was this sense of togetherness. And they were one in the sense of open-handedness. It says they held all things in common. In verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's like we sung in the song today. It, it was a selfless faith. They were selfless with their resources. They were open-handed. And it makes me think of Jesus, who did not grasp, he did not hold on to all that he had in heaven, but he selflessly let it go to come to earth and take care of our greatest need. Like Christ, these believers sacrificed to help those in need. And it's not that we need to reproduce these actions exactly. But as Paul stresses in Philippians 2, be like that in attitude. Be like that in our attitude toward our stuff, in our attitude towards one another, in our attitude towards our finances. Because 10,000 years from now, those things probably won't exist, but I am sure that people will. May we be known for what people used to say about the Christians in the second century. See how they love one another. And that brings me to the final characteristic. Outreach. They were characterized by outreach. 
A community of believers like this, devoted to one another, united like this, loving like this, is a compelling witness to the world. The world sees it and they see a reflection of Christ. They see the reality of the Holy Spirit and it stands out to them as authentic. And it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Which means they were leading people to Christ daily. For you and I to follow this example, it looks like taking the gospel into our lives daily. It means more than programs. It means more than events. It means more than services. As important as those things are, it's about cultivating a constant mindset of outreach in all that we do. It's about genuinely caring for people, saying how are you and meaning it. And about always being ready to share the hope of Christ inside of us. And as we live authentically and carry out the gospel daily, it will prove to be vital in our mission as it was for the disciples. The Holy Spirit transformed the believing community and it made all the difference. So just the final thing I want to take home, I want us to take home is this. It's three words. The same Spirit. The same Spirit who empowered each disciple. The same Spirit who emboldened Peter's witness. The same Spirit who awakened people's hearts. The same Spirit who transformed the community dwells in us. Dwells in you and I. The same Spirit who built the kingdom then, here, then and there is active here and now. The same Spirit is the power that propels our witness. So I'd just like to invite the band to come forward. And as they come forward, I'd like to invite you to bow and and pray with me. And as you do so, hear this scripture. This scripture sums up the entire thing. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Let's pray. Father in heaven.